2: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions
3: Welcome back. You're listening to three CR eight fifty five on your AM dial. The program you're hearing tonight is Beyond Zero. I'm your host, Andy we will be coming from the Coral, Coal and Climate Forum, which brought over 500 people out to Box Hill Town Hall. Candidates for next Saturday's election were presented by Rod Quantock. Introducing them was Professor Peter Christoph. Thanks to The Lighter Footprints and Caroline Ngevason for putting on such a valuable forum, and to Rob Anderson and Roger Weiss for getting the audio to us. When Josh Freinberg began a man with a big container marked Bleached, rushed up to the platform shouting about the Barrier Reef. He was overcome by security men, and Viv had to edit out quite a lot to fit into our time, but she wanted you to know how animated the meeting was with a desire for a coherent consensus on climate action. So first, you'll hear Peter Christoph from Melbourne University, then Josh Frydenberg, who is a Liberal Party member for this seat, Mark Butler, ALP's Shadow Minister for Climate Change, followed with Senator Janet Rice for the Greens at the end.
4: What I'd like to do is first begin to put climate, Australian climate energy and politics into context. We're in the middle of a contest between two tipping points those moments when systems change irrevocably. The first tipping point is an ecological one. It involves the impacts of global warming, and since the start of this century, a range of records have been broken as a result. So this year, atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide will rise and remain over 400 parts per million. Never have humans as a species experienced this. The last time this was so was some 23 to 25 million years ago, and then our planet was some three to four degrees warmer, in sea levels were between 5 and 40 metres higher. 14 of the last 15 hottest years since records began have occurred since the year 2000. The planet's warming faster than expected. 2014 was the, the hottest year on record. Until 2015 was the hottest year on record. Until 2016 promises to be the hottest year on record. As a consequence, Arctic summer sea ice is melting to what scientists expect will be a record low this year, and the winter maxima, the extent has been the smallest recorded for each successive year over the last 13 years. We're rapidly, appointing, we're rapidly approaching one of our tipping points when dark polar oceans replace the reflective surfaces of ice caps and the planet begins to warm autonomously. There's faster melting of ice in Greenland, contributing to accelerating sea level rise. And the earlier predictions of 20 centimetres to 1 metre by the end of this century are now seeming quite conservative. This process continues for centuries. We've also seen the growing frequency and intensity of extreme weather events, floods in Europe, in Australia, fires, storms, and so on. All of this leads to potential insecurity, of food of societies, the abandonment of coasts, population movements. We are fundamentally at the start of a climate, global climate emergency, where each additional ton of CO2 amplifies the crisis that we're in. There's a second competing tipping point, which is a political and cultural one. I had the privilege of being at Paris last year when the climate negotiations there led to a major promise, a promise of a rapid and accelerating shift to a decarbonised world. The Paris Agreement set the very ambitious goal of keeping warming to as close as possible to 1.5 degrees Celsius and well below two degrees. Global emissions are at a peak as soon as possible. Net greenhouse gas emissions are to be achieved, or net balance in greenhouse gas emissions, zero emissions, achieved within the second half of this century. All countries, 193 parties, including the US and China and other major emitters, agreed to submit their targets for 2030 and to ratchet them up every five years and to produce pathway documents which will see them decarbonise their economies soon after 2050. In 2018, the IPCC will produce a report on the path to 1.5 degrees and its impacts, and I'm sure that this report will have a profound change in mindsets of politicians and others. The Paris Agreement is a promissory note, At present, based on existing national commitments, we're still heading for at least 2.7 degrees Celsius or more, but it's a robust process for improvement to which Australia also committed itself. The growing impact of climate chaos is already increasing pressure for fast decarbonisation. Australia, however, is poorly prepared for either tipping point or for this shift. As the events of the last six months have shown, we have magnificent, fragile ecosystems which will be laid waste by global warming. The devastating impact of what is now being called a marine heat wave on the Great Barrier Reef is now well known. The increasing frequency of ocean warming, ocean acidification, sea level rise, will likely lead to the extinction of the reef, certainly if we go above two degrees Celsius. When it comes to cultural and political tipping points, I think we're perhaps worse off. Since 2009, Australian climate politics has been the site of pathological behaviour, with bitter internecine warfare between parties on an issue that is far more important than partisan politics. There's been no respect for the science by the Coalition, grudging but increasing respect by Labor, certainly in the last few years, and a strong recognition by the Greens. At the same time, Australia's climate and energy policies are incoherent. They work against each other, both domestically and internationally. Australia's mitigation targets are amongst the weakest for developed countries, for our emissions status and also our significant economic wealth. These targets are well below what was advised by the Independent Scientific Climate Change Authority. In fact, the Coalition's respect for climate science has been disturbing. The Climate Change Authority was for a long time under threat and the cuts to the CSIRO will disable our ability to get good local science in place. Key existing mechanisms to achieve these inadequate targets are unlikely to succeed. The direct action plan will not enable us to hit the 2030 target. It's underfunded at $2.55 billion over four four years, and its reverse auction process has not engaged any major emitters. Australia's emissions have risen by 6% over the last two years since we lost the carbon price. Looking forwards, there is no plan for decarbonising Australia's stationary energy sector. We need a plan to lead the nation to a coherent, rapid, orderly exit of fossil fuel-based power generation. The incoherence is also there in the heart of the bid, for example, to take a billion dollars out of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to protect the reef when a reduction in emissions is critical. Cutting emissions through shifts to renewables is relatively easy. Think about agriculture as a dark, hard part to deal with. So what this makes achieving this goal even more urgent. But how are we going to do a rapid transition without adequate funding and without a carbon price? Then there's the problem of the disjuncture between energy and climate policies in the international domain. Australia produces between one point, around 1.3% of global emissions domestically. It's about the 15th biggest emitter internationally. Well, when emissions embodied in its fossil fuel exports are taken into account, this figure rises to some 3.5% of total emissions planet-wide, putting us amongst the top 10 emitters. We have a moral responsibility for those emissions. We are morally accountable for what we export, and we will suffer the consequences. There's no plan for a strategic withdrawal from fossil fuel exports. Are we going to rely on market forces to deliver those outcomes? Policy incoherence needs to be overcome. Unfortunately, the brutal battles over the carbon tax have left most politicians reluctant to engage creatively, cooperatively uh, on this most important critical issue, which is why tonight is such an important opportunity to go
5: beyond point scoring and to develop a coherent approach to climate change. Thank you. I understand that the environment is an extremely important issue at this election, and that people in this room are extremely passionate. And I'm not here to debate the science. Indeed, I accept the science. I'm here to talk about the best possible way for Australia to tackle the challenge of climate change. Over the last six years, um, I have enjoyed very much and benefited greatly from my interaction with Lighter Footprints. My door has always been open. Indeed, I think uh, most of the candidates who have been against me in Kuyong have probably been Lighter Footprints alumni. But that being said... Um, It's been a very useful exchange and I hope it's been uh, mutually beneficial. Um, Today I'm very happy to talk about the Coalition's plans for for climate change uh, and other areas of the environment. I think it is a false choice to talk about the economy versus the environment or indeed for coal versus the reef. And so today I want to talk about three particular topics. What the government is practically doing... Uh, to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, Secondly, to talk about what we are doing to preserve the Great Barrier Reef. And thirdly, to talk about why I'm optimistic about our future and our ability to tackle the environmental challenges. So that whole suite of mechanisms, whether it's the Emissions Reduction Fund, whether it's the renewable energy target, whether it's our productivity plan, or whether it's in innovation and the various uh, funds that we have established there, we are committed to dealing with climate change. On the second issue of the Great Barrier Reef, everyone acknowledges what an icon this is. In fact, it's the world's largest living structure. Now, when we came to government, the Great Barrier Reef, in 2013, was on UNESCO's and the World Heritage List's watch list. We, as a result, put in place a plan. A plan, together with the State Government, which saw some $2 billion put aside for investment in various ways to protect the reef. And of course, as a result of this plan and the measures that we took to end dredging disposal, to end dredging disposable in the Great Barrier Marine Park, it was taken off UNESCO's watch list. And in fact, Australia was praised for its management. Now, in terms of other measures that we have taken, we recently announced the $1 billion fund and that $1 billion fund will focus on climate change mitigation strategies, as well as how to improve water quality treatment across a whole range of areas, including sewerage outfall in terms of pesticides, irrigation, and a various various other technologies. So there is a very concrete plan. And then finally, I wanted to talk about why I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic for, why, for one of the reasons that Peter actually described. The fact is we now have so many nations from across the world, he mentioned over 190 countries around the world, who have agreed for the first time to this uh, particular COP21 target. Now, is it enough? It's not enough. And that's why there is going to be these five-year renewals which Australia has and reviews that Australia has pushed for. But the fact that you've got so many countries, all very different, all very different. If I look at France they get more than 70% of their electricity from nuclear. If you go to Sweden, it's more than 40%. If you go to Norway, more than 98% of their energy comes from hydro. Every country has a different set of characteristics, but Australia has put its target forward as part of a global agreement, and I think that has to be a good thing. The second reason why I'm optimistic is because of the improvements in technology. Particularly the improvements in battery technology, which will allow us to store renewable energy in a much more efficient and effective way. The CSIRO says that battery technology costs will come down by at least 60% over the next 10 years. And that solar costs will come down substantially as well. So I think whether it's the Tesla cars, which are coming down in price, whether it's battery technology for the for the household or for the commercial business, or whether it's solar, there is great improvements in technology. So batteries of so technologies um, and um, the global agreement are very important. But the final point I just make is that the Australian economy is in transition. We are moving away from coal, and that is not a bad thing. In 2004, 77% of our electricity generation came from coal. Today it's just above 60% and it is decreasing substantially. Australia does export a lot of coal but we are only 4% of the global thermal coal production market, 4%. Happy to take questions on it, but I believe the transition is happening, it's happening for the right reasons, and Australia has a lot to be optimistic about. Thank you very much.
6: Uh, Look, it's a very timely opportunity to have a discussion about climate change policy, uh, in part because obviously we have got this seemingly endless election campaign we need to deal with, but also because, uh, as I think a couple of speakers have already uh, said, uh, we still are to a degree basking in the warm afterglow of a remarkably successful conference in Paris. Uh, Peter's right, the, the sum total of the the contributions or the targets that nations took to the conference takes us closer to three degrees of warming than two, but really to, to to get the consensus we did and a commitment from all nations of the world to take action around those targets of well below two degrees and a more qualified commitment around 1.5, given the level of division and disappointment of the Copenhagen conference only six years earlier, which for UN processes really is the blink of an eye was remarkable. And there's been significant analysis about why it happened. The US and China coming together and really driving an ambitious uh, an ambitious pre-conference process was obviously important. But really the reason why is that nations around the world are moving and they're moving very, very fast. And these are hard-headed decisions being made by nations. In part for the reason that the Bank of England Governor talked about before the conference when he said that the window to address climate change is finite and it's closing. There isn't the time to dilly-dally. I don't think he used the words dilly-dally, but we use language like that in Adelaide. But more importantly, more importantly, the Bank of England Governor warning, nations are moving because they recognise that there is a race on for jobs and for billions and billions of dollars in investment and that is the race that the rest of the world is undertaking at a fast and furious pace. Last year, for the first time in history, 2015, renewable energy investment was bigger than the combined investment in coal, gas, hydro and nuclear power, and it will never change back. Every nation is doing it. China, as in so many other areas, is leading the pack. It invested more than the US and the EU combined. Its targets are extraordinary. Its 2020 targets for solar are 150 gigawatts, for wind, 280 gigawatts. To put that into some context, our entire electricity systems, not much more than 50 gigawatts. The Indians have ambitious solar targets. The Americans have closed down a couple of hundred of their 500 coal-fired power plants. A Tory government in the UK will close their last coal-fired power plant in the early 2020s. And last year, although we're proud of having installed one gigawatt of solar capacity in Australia, England, where as far as I can tell the sun shines three days a year, installed four gigawatts, four times what we achieved in this vast continent with some of the best solar radiation in the world. We are slipping behind. We were one of the renewable energy superpowers. In 2013, we were rated one of the four most attractive destinations to invest in renewables, with the US, China and Germany. We were doing extraordinary things and then Tony Abbott came along. Investment collapsed in 2014 by 88% in renewables at a time when in the rest of the world it was soaring. We fell that year to 39th place in terms of renewable energy spending. We were behind Myanmar. The Burmese generals got clean energy. Tony Abbott couldn't. We have to get back onto a clean energy future. What we've seen because of the government that Josh Frydenberg is a part of, what we've seen is pollution start to rise again for the first time in a decade. We are pretty much the only major advanced economy at the moment where carbon pollution is going up not coming down. And the government's own data, which it didn't release before the Paris Conference and snuck out the week of Christmas, projects that year on year carbon pollution will continue to go up under direct action and having no renewable energy policy whatsoever beyond 2020, which is the position Josh Frydenberg has. We need to get this back under control. We have a plan that we've outlined in very great detail before the Australian people some weeks ago. We've accepted the advice of the Climate Change Authority that the minimum position consistent with two degrees is at least a 45% reduction in emissions by 2030. We've We've extended that commitment to a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050, which is consistent with the Paris Agreement. We have a comprehensive plan to transition our electricity system by increasing renewable energy investment massively over the course of the 2020s, but at the same time starting an orderly transition out of coal-fired power. Josh might talk about those statistics on coal-fired power, but in his government's time over the past three years, coal has retained its position in this country as king. Coal-fired power has increased its share of the market because of the smashing of confidence in renewable energy investment under this government. We also need to deal with other sectors of the economy. Land clearing, broad-scale land clearing has started up again after Campbell Newman trashed Peter Beattie and Anna Bly's landmark reforms that stopped up to a million hectares of remnant vegetation being cleared every year in Queensland. If the state governments won't deal with this, a Commonwealth Labor government... In the same way that Bob Hawke did in 1983, we'll intervene and override state governments to ensure that we don't see a return to broad-scale land clearing that not only impacts on biodiversity and on runoff to the Great Barrier Reef, but also has a dramatic impact on our carbon footprint. We've got to deal with transport. I think it was Peter who said that we've got to get a bipartisan commitment back around this policy. There is not a democracy in the world where... There is not a democracy in the world that has a serious climate change policy that is not subject to bipartisan consensus. I watched the UK general election last year uh, and uh, I was just I was dumbstruck by the, the sense of comedy between all three parties, but particularly the two alternative prime ministers. I think they had a minor disagreement about the proportion of offshore and onshore wind power, But otherwise than that, this policy area is resolved in the UK and so many other countries, particularly democracies. We have to get back to that position. We've been trying to coax Josh's boss into a debate about climate change and renewable energy. He simply won't take it up because he's handcuffed himself to the policies that were put in place by Tony Abbott. Those policies were deliberately designed to do nothing and against that indicator they're working marvellously well. We've got to have a different debate in this country. This election is the time to do it. There's still, it pains me to say, 16 days left. After all that we've done, congratulations on coming out in such a balmy evening for June in Melbourne. Uh, All strength to your arm and keep up the fight. Thank you.
1: Thank you all, all of you for being here. It's so fantastic to look out upon a hall of such a huge number of people. Thank you Lighter Footprints and ECAM for doing all of the hard work to make this happen. I want to acknowledge that we're on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people and pay our respects to them, their elders past and present. And to note that if we are going to be truly caring for country and caring for culture, we have to deal with climate change. I want a show of hands. Who here in the room has had your oh shivers moment about climate change? That moment when you realise, geez, this is big. I mean, the science has been telling us for decades that we face a big and growing problem in the future. But that future is now. Today, there is too much carbon in the atmosphere. It's already damaging our health and well-being, our economy, other species, our water supplies, our capacity to grow food. And the reality is that we have a carbon footprint that is enormous and excessive, even as we try to minimise it. And the measures that have been outlined by Josh and by Mark tonight just aren't going to be enough to address it. We are experiencing the extreme events such as the Great Barrier Reef bleaching. And the wildfires in Canada last month, which burnt over half a million hectares, destroyed 1,600 buildings and still aren't under control. And in India, last month's heat wave saw their highest temperature on record, 51 degrees. It killed hundreds of people directly, plus there were hundreds of farmers who reportedly committed suicide in the face of crop failure, and the impacts on food production are affecting hundreds of millions of people. And this is only a two-month snapshot of just over one degree of warming. We can't continue this way. We are indeed in an emergency and should be taking emergency action to halt global warming in its tracks. Three years ago, I said, to keep global warming under two degrees, four-fifths of the current known reserves of oil, coal and gas have to stay in the ground. And that applies to Australia as well, where we have a quarter of the world's coal reserves. And that means no new coal mines, no expansion of the gas industry. And and that's just to keep us under two degrees. Paris was a step forward globally. It put the target of 1.5 degrees on the table But we are most likely saying goodbye to the Great Barrier Reef with 1.3 degrees. The last three years in Australia and my last two years in the Senate have been deeply depressing. Three years ago we had a price on pollution. Our carbon pollution was dropping and we had a renewable energy target of 41,000 gigawatt-hours. But since then we've had the destruction of Tony Abbott and the disappointment of Prime Minister Turnbull. We've lost our carbon price our renewable energy target was slashed by the government teaming up with Labor, and our carbon pollution is rising again. Josh didn't talk much about coal. He said, we're moving out of it, but the reality is that the Adani Carmichael coal mine in these last three years has been approved by a Queensland Labor government and the Federal Coalition government. Carmichael is only one of nine mines in the Galilee Basin. And burning the coal from these mines would release more than Australia's total annual carbon pollution each year. If the Galilee Basin was a nation, it would be the world's seventh largest emitter of carbon dioxide. And despite all Prime Minister Turnbull's talk of innovation and transition, there is no plan. We are still stuck in the past, subsidising fossil fuels, still expecting them to provide for us into the future the future strategies of the revamped CSIRO, about to turf out half of its climate scientists, they all presume a big role for fossil fuels. I sit in the parliament and hear the inanity from government senators that coal is good for humanity. They are still saying that. Hello, hello, can they hear us? Do they understand? And Josh... Talking about coal, I mean, I I hear you on the radio spouting absolute nonsense that Australian coal is going to lift Indians out of poverty. Josh, I hate to break it to you. Our coal is not clean. And burning our coal results in carbon dioxide, whether you burn it here or in India or in Timbuktu. You know what will lift people out of poverty? It's going to be empowering people with that very liberal idea of decentralised power, of clean, renewable energy. And then Bill Shorten said on Q&A on Monday night, a Labour government isn't going to ban coal mining in this country. Coal is going to be part of our energy mix for the foreseeable future. The power of the vested interests, the oil, gas and coal companies, are huge global warming is being treated like a political poison ball rather than a fundamental threat to our very existence. So, but we've we've got to have hope, because we have to. Because if you don't fight, you lose. And because how could I look my future grandchildren in the eye if I said, sorry, it was all too hard, so I gave up. Because taking urgent, serious action... It's logical, it's possible, and it makes economic as well as social and environmental sense. In transport, our vision is to supercharge investment in public transport with $10 billion over the next four years and encouraging walking and cycling, the bike being the world's most energy-efficient vehicle. We would fast-track high-speed rail so that people can train it rather than fly and to soak up carbon the very best thing we can do is to stop logging our native forests and let them the most carbon dense forests in the world just keep growing old I mean, this election campaign has been dominated by the spender meter the others are happy to commit a stadium here a sports scout hall there as long as it's in a marginal seat there's no big thinking there's no commitment from either labor or liberals for the serious investment that's needed to be tackling global warming seriously. I say we can't afford not to act. The insurance companies know it. Last week's floods along the east coast cost $80 million, and last month's wildfires in Canada, $9 billion. But game-changing projects like high-speed rail are seen to be off the agenda, but they, even though they don't blink when, when it comes to spending $50 billion on submarines or giving $50 billion in t- corporate tax cuts. We can afford to act. We must afford to act. The Greens believe that Australia can be a global leader in shifting from the dirty industries of the past to the jobs-rich, pollution-free economy of the future. And the best way of getting there is going to be voting Greens in two weeks' time.
2: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
0: In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday...
4: Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station.
1: At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for
0: $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy
5: or online at 3cr.org.
1: Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
3: You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show at the Coral Coal and Climate Forum. The biggest question to see if the candidates were fair income about cutting emissions was about the madness of giving subsidies to the dying coal industry. Peter Christoph is followed by Josh Frydenberg, Mark Butler and Janet Rice.
4: Look, just for the last question, I want to bring together two narratives. The first is a narrative that emerged very strongly in the um, Paris conference last year. The, the, the result of that particular debate was a very powerful announcement at the Paris conference opposing fossil fuel subsidies and, and requesting governments to move away from them. That has been now embedded in a number of different agreements some of which were uh, strongly supported at the Paris conference itself. So here's the question. Given that we have something in the vicinity of $6 billion of fossil fuel rebates going to gas and co- the gas and coal industry I'm not including agricultural diesel fuel rebates there. Will you in, in government in the next term move to... Uh, Uh, eliminate those subsidies and redistribute them either to renewables or to some other worthy part of the economy. Uh, (laughs) uh,
5: Mark just said it's an opportunity for a big announcement. Um, (laughs) He's got a good sense of humour because I think he's going to say what I say, which is that the diesel fuel rebate, but in terms of the diesel fuel rebate here, um, it goes across a whole series of sectors. It goes to the agricultural sector. It goes to um, the gas sector. I mean, When we're talking here about gas, people fail to mention when they're talking about the United Kingdom, that they get more than 20% of their uh, their electricity from nuclear, that they get more than 30% from gas. And interestingly, gas has half the emissions intensity of coal, but it's still classified as a fossil fuel. So I think we don't want to put at risk um, the competitiveness of those sectors and the jobs, so we won't be changing the diesel fuel rebate.
6: We, we had, a as I said, we, um, we had a pretty deep process of consultation and reflection on our policies. You do that when you lose government. Um, and you do that when you try on two occasions to get up sort of sustainable, credible, long-term climate policy and fail twice. And we succeeded the second time but was abolished pretty quickly. And for all of those consultations, particularly over the course of the summer... Uh, where we were finalising our policy, a number of organisations raised the question of fossil fuel subsidies or particularly the diesel fuel rebate. Uh, And um, they raised it strongly and they argued argued the case. At the end of the day, at the end of that process where we dealt with a very comprehensive climate change policy, in the context of climate change policy, we haven't taken a decision to take to the election a policy to abolish those rebates.
1: it's worth just outlining what we're talking about. What the, the diesel fuel rebate means is that mining companies, G, mining companies, gas companies, Gina Reinhart's of the world, they only pay six cents a litre tax on their diesel compared with you and I who pay 39 cents a litre. This adds up to a subsidy to those mining companies and others of around $5 billion every year. The Greens are absolutely adamant that we should be abolishing those, those subsidies and be putting that $5 billion a year to much better things, much more productive, much more sustainable projects, putting it into the infrastructure, putting it into the renewable energy infrastructure, putting it into public transport projects and creating lots of jobs and lots of growth. investment renewables rather than sort of giving subsidies to fossil fuel companies. I mean, there was a, some research that was just released yesterday that showed that the, the Greens policy of 90% renewables by 2030 would cause a massive increase in, jo- in jobs. The number of jobs in the renewable sector doubling to 30,000 by 20 by 2020 and then increasing by 5,000 the next decade after that. Renewables are jobs rich. Spending money on renewables instead of subsidising fossil fuel, com- um, the fossil fuel companies is a very positive way for us to be heading that's both good for our economy as well as being good for our environment.
2: Natalie Isaacs is our guest tonight. She's the founder of a group called One Million Women and she's with us to urge you to send their petition for the election. It's a petition to uh, MPs, uh, like an open letter. Welcome, Natalie. Tell us about yourself and your path to climate action.
0: Oh, so yes, I'm the founder of One Million Women but but I, I used to be a cosmetics manufacturer so I'm a newcomer, I have to say, to this and I got the point... On climate change back in 2006 and realized, realized that, you know, it affects all of us, me, my family, my friends, and so I just decided to Really do something about it, and that's why I started One Million Women because I realised that actually individual action and how we live plays a
2: huge role in the solution to the climate crisis. That's great. Well, one, you know, one million individuals is a lot of people, and even five hundred people signing a petition, you know, becomes like a lobby group. For this election, you've got an open letter that listeners can sign. What does the letter call for?
0: Our One Million Women election call is, is focusing on really three key points. And, and we're calling for a national consensus and, and really broad political agreement across all party lines. And for urgent and sustained action on strong commitments. climate action and deep cuts for carbon pollution you know Australia has to be a global leader leader in this and we you know we went to Paris we 197 countries agreed to keeping global warming to below to to a commitment to 1.5 degrees and below and so so Australia must lead on this so we're asking for no new coal mines. We're asking for 100% renewable, clean energy by 2040 and a really clear plan to get to net zero carbon economy by 2050. Our second point is about the Barrier Reef. So it's sad story, kind of the climate emergency we face. So yes. we're asking uh, uh, that Australia to elevate saving the Great Barrier Reef to a status of national emergency, but really
2: to put climate change, climate action at its core. So that thing is for them to get onto your website, One Million Women, and find this open letter which calls on members of parliament to have consensus and broad political agreement, in other words, to make it a bipartisan policy, climate action, and part of that climate action is no new minds and saving the Barrier Reef. Is that yeah,
0: in yeah, a nutshell? That, that that, that's it in a nutshell, yeah. that's right And that's and what, enough for them to be know, going on
2: with Seeing as they're so timid about it so far
0: Anyway, we've got uh, nearly 5,000 people signed, uh, who've signed our open letter now So mm. everyone listening, please
2: head to it Well, I like the idea of consensus on climate action And I even heard Joss Frydenberg and Mark Butler at... Uh, Melbourne Town Hall like it was Box Hill Town Hall climate coal and coral meeting it was called but that was really candidates forum and they were saying that they were here to serve the public and I even saw a softening between them at the end they weren't so pushy with each other or with the public because I mean it was a climate action public in that hall 500 people were there and they sort of said look this is so dangerous this is so important we need to stop disagreeing on this and i thought that was a slight shift maybe for the electorate and maybe just because the election's around the corner but there's a kind of need to get this consensus and that's what your open letter calls for i want to know why do you think why are they still not stopping new coal mines and stopping the subsidies to coal i've asked them and asked them you know in interviews but the media kind of collude with all of this they don't really push this either why do you think they're what's holding them up uh look
0: i really don't know i you know it's just like you cannot cannot save the great Barrier reef without addressing coal mines like it's just ridiculous to think that um you can do both at the same time because Ultimately, it's, it's all about climate change and so, it, it, you know, it just, it just has to be addressed.
2: 3CR it gives a voice to the voiceless. You know, we often have people on air who don't usually get interviewed by the media and I think you've uh, appealed to women. Your group is called One Million Women and you've got... Um, Many women endorsing your campaign, like Olympic swimmer Stephanie Rice, I saw her face on you know, endorsing the reef campaign. Another woman said, use your power to save the reef while there is still power. But a lot of women at home with children or juggling work and home do not feel they have much power. So what do you say to them, to ordinary people?
0: Uh, look, well, in terms of putting the election aside for a second women have extraordinary power and that's what we focus on women make 85% of the consumer decisions that affect the household carbon footprint and and we focus on on empowering women to cut carbon pollution in their daily lives because women are women are the game changers but also women you know there are there's so many uh, studies and um you know research reports done on that women actually um see climate change as a serious problem more so than men yes. and um a recent report showed that 83% of Australian women see climate change as a serious problem compared to 71% of men we focus on women cuz women are going to women feel the effects of climate change Um, around the world more so than men. Mm. And so, and women are an incredibly powerful niche market. We represent 50% of the world's population. And so that's another thing that we're focusing on with this election is that women, we, there must be a commitment to gender equality. And gender equality is equal participation of women is really important for, is (laughs) essential. For not just the evaluation and um, implementation of climate policies, but obviously for all decision making, and we absolutely cannot go back to where we have an Australian cabinet of only one single woman which is what we had from 2013 to Yeah, That's right so it's offensive really, really it, isn't yeah. it and I
2: think women are not just a niche market and the ones who make consumer decisions but women have powerful ideas women are actually here for the long haul not for this short, short-term success or short-term target which is what we've been bandied about, you know, targets this and targets that. But really, women can see the long thing the, the family growing up, the, the second generation, the fifth generation. You know, we make families in order to have grandchildren, but not just that, to have great grandchildren, to have a future. And this is the existential problem of climate change that actually we are cutting off all our future. And I find that women I interview, even quite, you know, hard headed sort of engineers at maybe their solar power conferences, and they're engineers, but they're women, they take this family point of view they talk about people and uh, the effect of climate change on people that's I think that's the idea that women have to contribute
0: yeah and and look I gender equality and climate change intrinsically linked and and I the nearer a decision-making body reflects the society it's making decisions for the more relevant the outcomes will be and Australia there's what 51% of the population are women and so you know, we, we, we have to get there. It's 2016, for goodness sake. We yeah. have to get
2: there. Yes. So we're, uh, we'll ask you listeners to look up that website, One Million Women. It's got the number one, One Million Women, and then you'll find uh, the letter that Natalie's been talking about, calling on politicians, get consensus on this bipartisan policy, save the reef, and to have women much more participating in gender equality in implementing and monitoring these climate policies like women can say hang on this is not going to work like i thought the policy of greg hunt for the recently announced for the barrier reef they're going to put one billion dollars that they've taken from a, the arena fund like they've pinched the money from one pot of gold to put into another and they're going to use it for water purification water quality but that's not that's not what's the main problem in the reef it's the global warming of the sea that's yeah that that's right and look when i heard I look I, 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 for a really
0: brief moment there, maybe thirty seconds i thought I thought amazing money for the reef. I thought this was going to be this was this was showing some <laughs> leadership and then and then I heard it was just taking <sighs> from the the clean energy finance yeah. Corporation and and you think this is where ah oh, you just it is just so this is a climate emergency, yeah. and we need. We need leadership. We need leadership on every level. Mm. We need a leader that is going to not just, not have climate change as an adjunct, for mm. the rest of the things going on you know climate change affects everything it affects our, the economy it affects our jobs it affects our health and well-being it affects everything and we, we've, we've got the solutions we just need the political world to match now That's right. and we need leaders
2: to stand together and to be decisive for climate action and we've been talking to natalie isaacs who's the yes, yes the founder of one million women yes. and go to their website listeners to take action today it's easy just to sign that letter and then that might Involved that might get you involved in further action. Thanks, Natalie.
0: Well, if you listen to three oh clap your hands. If you listen to three oh clap your hands. If you listen to three Oh, yes, you know where you are. If you
3: listen to three C clap your hands. If you listen to three oh clap your hands. If you listen to oh, three oh clap
0: your hands. We'll check out the happy and fine. They gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to three uh Flap your
3: ears. What? Who
0: the hell is that?
3: Flap your ears. What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. Flap your ears. Get out. Get the hell out of here
7: now.
2: Adam Bant is the Federal MP for Melbourne. He's the only Green in the House of Representatives. So welcome, Adam. How are you?
7: Hi, oh, nice to on your show.
2: What are the chances that more Greens will be elected to the lower house?
7: Ch- chances are quite good in seat of Batman uh, which can cover, covers seats from Northcote northwards uh, and adjoins my seat uh, Alex Batal is in with a real shot of picking up that seat uh, we're also in the great shot in a seat of Wills where Samantha Ratnam is running and seat of Higgins for, with Jason Ball and Steph Hodgins May down in Melbourne Ports um, they are all in with a real shot this election mm-hmm. uh, and up in Sydney In some inner-city seats, Jim Casey in the seat of Granler is running a very high-profile and very strong campaign there. So I think out of all of those, there is a very good chance that we'll grow our number in the House of Representatives at this election.
2: People worry about preferences, so I just want you as a public service to explain preferences. If I vote number one Greens, number two Labor, what happens?
7: Well, if the Greens candidate doesn't get elected and they get eliminated, then your preferences go on to Labor as a full-value vote. And around the country, in almost everywhere... That's what we're recommending, that people vote Greens and preference Labor above Liberal. Uh, In some places, we're leaving it up to the voter to decide, saying vote one Greens and decide the rest yourself. But uh, what I think people need to know is that if they vote Greens this election, their preferences won't be going to the Liberal Party um, unless, of course, that's something they decide to do. But if you vote Greens and follow um, the how to vote card uh, and don't preference um, the Liberals above Labor, then you'll be safe. Your vote will be going um, to keep help keep the Liberals out. And at the end of the day, that's something this election I would like to see is a change of government. Sadly, you can't say the same about the Labor Party. The Labor Party is preferencing the Liberal Party and helping them out in a number of seats, including... Seats in South Australia that the Liberals might win. Labour and Liberal have done a preference deal. So, in some places, if you vote Labour, your preferences will be going to the Liberals, which is very, very disappointing.
2: Stay in the seat of Melbourne. You've been, I imagine, phoning and door knocking and meeting a lot of people because out in campaign mode. What are they talking about when they talk about climate action?
7: I think there's a real sense that um, people understand the urgency and that we've got to uh, turn the ship around in a very short period of time and make Australia a zero-pollution society as quickly as we possibly can. I think there's a... um, a real sense of disappointment that Malcolm Turnbull is keeping Tony Abbott's climate change policies and an understanding that um, unless we tackle the question of coal, um, we're never going to properly address climate change because Australia is very heavily dependent on coal for its electricity and um, we also export an enormous amount of it as well. So increasingly people are saying to me, we've got to get off coal, um, how can we do it? Um, the Greens have got a plan to do it and uh, they're increasingly looking at the other parties and realising that they don't. So I think that with, with climate, I think people understand... The urgency in this morning, government to get on an act.
2: Mm. Well, now we'll come to Hazelwood. A lot 25% of Victorians' energy comes from Hazelwood Power Station, and I've read in the press that NG, the French company that owns it, has told their parliament that they may close the power station. Can you tell me what the latest is and what you can do in federal parliament about making sure that there's rehabilitation paid for and the workers getting trained?
7: Retrained? To replace Hazelwood with clean energy and ensure that the people who work there and also the community generally in the Latrobe Valley are looked after. And that's the Greens' plan, is to make sure that as we transition to renewables that no one is left behind. But also we recognise that um, if we, uh, unless the the government steps in, then coal-fired power stations like Hazelwood will keep going. And... Part of the reason for that is that the cost of running Hazelwood is pretty low. Um, the coal mine is sitting right next door to it. All the infrastructure is already built. All they need to do now, and of course the plant is past its use-by date and has been for many years. So all they need to do is keep digging it up and um, shoveling it into the power station next door and burning it. And without uh, there being a price on pollution, that works out to be a quite cheap way of generating electricity. And the part of the problem with that is that because it's so cheap without a carbon price um then it makes it harder for renewables to come online and compete Mm. they're competing on an uneven playing field so we need to step in and close hazelwood to give um, renewables the space to grow the good news is we could do it at the moment and it wouldn't affect victoria's electricity supply because we've got a surplus of energy in victoria so now would be the perfect time to do it and federally we're we've introduced the Renew Australia Act, which would um, begin the process of um, getting a legally binding timetable for closing down all coal-fired power stations over um, the next 15 years and allow a staged replacement of those with renewable energy. And I think uh, that's something the federal government can and should do uh, because if we keep going as we are, then I'm really worried that Hazelwood will keep going and going and going.
2: Yes, I think clean energy and climate emergency are much more central to Greens thinking and uh, I have a feeling that a lot of people are angry at the parliamentary process itself which gave us a clean energy package in the government before the Abbott government and then it was all ripped up or a lot of it was ripped up, tatters are left behind. They're distrustful of Turnbull who's saying, look, uh, he, he's a man, he, he, he has climate change as a central issue for himself personally but he seems unable to do it for his." party so what about people who are wavering and thinking well I like Malcolm Turnbull I'd like to vote for him what do you say to them?
7: Well part of the problem is that he's done a deal with the um, climate denying faction of his party to get the gig and as part of that deal he's beholden to the Tony Abbott era climate policies.
2: So that was Adam Bant he's the federal MP for the seat of Melbourne and I'm sorry we had to cut Adam a little bit short there because we had a technical problem that made the last part of the audio not very good to listen to. Adam did talk about a marvellous scheme they've got with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to save you from the upfront costs of putting solar power on your roof whether you are a business or a house and this is absolutely game changing. He also gave a plug for community radio which is under threat and I ask all of you to support that. He said that we might end up with not really any choice between the media outlets if we didn't have alternative radio to keep a truth coming out and uh, they only need 1.4 million every year to keep 37 metropolitan stations alternative radio stations on air
3: you're listening to beyond zero on 3cr 855 on your am dial Uh, i would like to thank the speakers at box hill town hall natalie isaacca and adam Bant. thanks to the team tonight teddy roger joe jane and viv special thanks to rob anderson and lighter footprint uh, action this week. Maybe sign on to the One Million Women Open. Lear to MPs. Do everything you can to see that you talk to people about why they might vote one for climate. Uh, we've also got our radio fund still going till Thursday the 30th of June and any donation over $2 is tax deductible. We'd like to sp- send a special thanks to Mr Norman Pollock for his generous donation. Thank you for listening to Beyond Zero.